Welcome nerds, welcome boys, welcome girls to a brand new edition of Geek to Me Radio. Today we've got Mark Pellegrino and attorney Andrew Rosso talking about the Guardian Project on Kickstarter. We've got composer Jeremy Turner talking about his work on Marvel 616 on Disney+. And then we'll finish it off talking with Rob Price, VFX supervisor of Zoic Studios about their work on The Haunting of Bly Manor. Stand by. We're talking TV, comics and movies, and video games. For those of you tuning in, finding us for the first time, welcome to Geek to Me Radio. For the longtime listeners, I so appreciate you coming here each week. My name is James Enstall. I'm the host of the show. With episode 197, as we approach the road to 200, this show, as I mentioned, bursting at the seams with guests. We need to dive right in. Right now, we're joined by actor Mark Pellegrino and attorney, law professor, and writer Andrew Rosso talking about The Guardian Project, which is a reality docu-series. They've got a Kickstarter to raise money to get this going. Gentlemen, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So uh, it's a, we do pop culture stuff. We always talk about uh, TVs, movies, and uh, comic books. So talk a little bit about uh, the origin story of how the two of you came together. <laughs> um, well, I guess uh, it, it happened uh, as a result of Andrew asking me to do a... Um, a uh, a cameo for his uh, anti-bullying website Cyberbite. I did the cameo, and then he asked me for an interview, uh, and uh, did about an hour long interview, and then talked for about an hour and a half after that, because we shared a lot of uh, similar dynamics growing up and experienced uh, lots of bullying uh, growing up, but also had had witnessed and been uh, and, and been victims of bullying online as well. And we decided um, we decided to do something about it. And so um, I took uh, the name from a group of uh, followers, of, of, of uh, social media followers, uh, who circled the wagons around me during uh, a wave of bullying. And uh, they called themselves the Guardians, and we decided to adopt that name and uh, and use it for a project to help uh, stem the tide of uh, of uh, social media violence and this uh, this television series idea was hatched out of our brainstorming and Andrew as an attorney obviously there's many different branches you can go down the road for as far as uh, criminal law uh, marriage law all these kind of things stuff like libel suits and everything like that it I, I think for some people on their conscious mind it doesn't register to a high enough level, but I'm sure 
And I can only imagine with the rise of social media and the internet that libel and slander things have only increased tenfold in the past, I'd say, decade. Has that been your experience? Definitely, and probably more, even more so after this election season, not to get political. Yeah. But I, I think, to your point, anytime there's a new form of technology, there are going to be new vulnerabilities, consequences that are exploited and, and discovered just because of the nature of the beast. The, the, what's important is knowing that they exist, knowing how to address them properly to where individuals can use the technology for the purposes that they are created for and to also have some sort of mechanism for accountability when those systems are abused. And obviously people, as you said, especially with the election, people are now looking at uh, Section 230. Is Twitter and, and plat, uh, platform or is Twitter a publisher? And they're saying the same with Facebook. And it's almost, I feel like, uh, I just watched a docu-series about uh, video games called High Score on Netflix and how the laws never seem to be able to keep up with the type of technology and the things we have going. So is that something that needs to be actively addressed? Is that something that's going to be an internal change by people who are bringing these kind of suits? Or is that something that Congress should, and again, not to get political, but should be more proactive in addressing, in your opinion? Sure. Um, I'll give you my thoughts, and then I'll turn it over to Mark, because I know we agree, but also have different uh, opinions on how it should be implemented, <laughs> which makes us even more interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I think the problem lies in that our laws, as they currently exist, are not digitized or modernized for today's digital age. Uh, because of that, it has made any type of question involving social media and uh, online forums very difficult to, to litigate, to understand. And whether you have an individual on the bench or you know a jury, everyone seems to have their own understanding or rather lack thereof of what social media is, how they operate, how they make money, how they advertise, and what rights a user has in comparison to the platform. I do believe that Congress over the past year and a half of requesting, and I say that politely, but requesting uh, the CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, and you know Google's CEO to, to come forward and to answer questions is a double-edged sword in the sense of it is forcing, in a sense, these individuals to answer questions that I feel should have been answered a long time ago, but maybe not at the uh, requirement of, of Congress. And Mark, I'll turn it over to you to, to pick it up from there. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, uh, you know, common law tradition grows by virtue of trial and error, and it's and as new problems present themselves, there, there, and and lawsuits, conflicts result uh, as, as progress and the new problems happen. Then courts sort of resolve things on an ad hoc basis, and it becomes a part of our our traditional law. So I think both activism and um, individual uh, litigants bringing cases against other individuals will help to solve this problem more than Congress can. Uh, I also have sort of a civil libertarian point of view about this whole Section 230 um, thing. I don't think it's Congress's place to uh, regulate speech. 
Um, I think on a, this is a, this, this platform, all these social media platforms, even though they solicit the public are private companies and in a, in a, in a, anyone's on anyone's property, whether it's intellectual property or, you know, or actual, or actual hard, hard, uh, hard, uh, terra firma, um, your rules go, your, your rules are the law and that's what freedom of speech and, and property rights are. Um, I think the social media platforms have algorithms that are informed by social justice academics and linguistics, and that is what that's what sort of forces them to not forces them but makes them look uh, in a biased way on certain platforms over others, and why why some groups like Hamas uh, or ISIS can still have a social media presence. And and actual thinkers like a Dave Rubin, who thinks outside the box and can't be classified as left or right, is can sometimes be suspended or barred from social media use. So I think these social media platforms need to adopt objective rules for um, for the exchange of ideas and language, and that those objective rules are libel and slander and violence. You can't lie. You can't spread false narratives about somebody. You can't cause objective damages to them by spreading these false narratives, and you can't threaten violence. That's not free speech. Now, if they did that, I think they would get the respect of the entire population, and these witch hunts wouldn't be encouraged by one side of the political aisle because they happen to be the losers at the moment or down at the moment or the ones being um, rather unscrupulously um, uh, prejudicially attacked by the by the social media sites. So I think, for everybody's sake, <laughs> let's return to property rights and let's return to the idea uh, that force and fraud are the things that we're trying to mitigate in a civil society. And then I think we'll actually be somewhere. And it's very interesting because you you mentioned libertarian. It's very uh, a lot of times people like myself who I consider myself a centrist, libertarian leanings. Uh, we almost get drowned out by the people because there's the people on the right and the people on the left are shouting. I feel like something like public bullying, spreading of libelous narratives on social media, that shouldn't be a political issue. That should be a, hey, let's be better people issue. Uh, but uh, with these polarized times, which we find ourselves, obviously we've seen it a lot in the past year, like Andrew mentioned in this election, we're seeing it a lot. But I think it's it's one of those things where it shouldn't be politicized, but do you find, we'll start with Mark, do you find it hard for people to put politics aside when it comes to that? Because they like to point to their side, whoever side they are, and say, well, the other guy was doing this. Yeah, it is hard to put politics aside only because, um, I mean, I think we're a political, very political society, but politics is, is deeply enmeshed with ethics, your own personal ethics. And so at- attacking one's personal ethics, in, 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 it, it by its nature, inspires defensiveness and hostility. Um, and I think there's been a deterioration in the ability to communicate properly across those channels. I think over the since since around 2010 or so, I'd say it started to deteriorate, and and since 2016, it's gone completely completely downhill. Um, it, it is a personal moral issue, it, and because politics is so tied into ethics, it will involve that. Um, and but I don't know that that's necessarily the focus of our project. Certainly, would like to bring civility back to conversations, and I, we think accountability will help that. But it's more about 
you know, the great deal of damage that cancel culture does. I mean, yeah. once the fingers start getting pointed and the false narratives get, um, they get uh, viral, then people's lives are literally ruined by this stuff. And that's the stuff that we want to stop. And we've seen that now come out with, uh, obviously, Johnny Depp. It turns out Amber Heard was, it seems like she was more of the aggressor in that. And Johnny Depp's career has taken a toll. We see things like that, and it, and it's a shame. Uh, but it's just one of those, is it the world in which we live? I mean, are the laws keeping up with this quick enough to help the problem? Andrew? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, you, you made a good uh, good reference, you know, with what's going on with Johnny Depp. And, him, you know, he, as a result of everything, decided to exit a franchise that he gave so much to, you know, his own performances with, you know, Disney's Pirates, right? And, you know, the Harry Potter trilogy or saga. I think what this shows is that, as I said before, I still don't think our laws are properly situated to even address our age of social media, the emergence of social media. Mm. And as these cases come forward, it's, it's almost as if the court has to, to learn from both plaintiffs and defense on what's happening on both sides of social media. How can a tweet be used against somebody? How can one detect emotion from words? It's very difficult to do, especially if you're taking it at face value. So I think, you know, going off you know, what Mark uh, has said, and I, I agree with, is there should be a standard that uh, this behavior is is measured against. And that is, you know, Mark, you know, the threat of force, a threat of harm. You know, there has to be these strict criteria. And I think that will ultimately help the court because what we're seeing right now our senators, especially those who are, are mothers and fathers to, to, to their children who may be, you know, young girls, young boys advocating for anti-bullying laws. And the problem with that is when you have somebody opposing the enactment of these laws, when they're faced with the question of, well, you have a young daughter. You have a young son. What if somebody said this about your son, about your family, about you? What would you want to see done? And I think 10 out of 10 times, there's no response or a deflection because there is no response. It is, there's only one answer to that. And that's the problem we're seeing is that I don't think people are taking it as seriously as they should. And I really don't know what is going to be the moving force behind that. And that's why Mark and I are trying to build what we are trying to build. And so uh, the $20,000 goal gets met, uh, production starts. Do you have a time frame as to how far from the end of the Kickstarter and its funding to when this project might be done and ready for people to see? Do you have any time frame in mind or anything like that? Well, the um, the twenty thousand dollars funds uh, production of a pitch deck, which is a fairly sophisticated, uh, fairly sophisticated uh, method of pitching networks. So once we get once we get the uh, the pitch deck done, then it's a matter of pitching it around to various networks. Um, there's been a little bit of interest, uh, uh, pre pre Kickstarter interest that we've that we've seen. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to take advantage of that, and then it's it's anybody's guess. Television shows can can be put up quickly, or it can take a couple of years. We're hoping, 
you know, I'd like to get this up within this year, though. Uh, not 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 2020, but within 2021. And if people want to find out more about this or get in contact with it to you personally, maybe they want to do some kind of special type of help. Uh, what are the best ways to interact with you? Start with Mark. Um, for me, you can you can always contact me at, at Twitter, which is uh, Twitter handle is at Mark R Pellegrino. All right, and for me, my Twitter is Rosso E F Q. That's R O S S O W S Q. And the the and website is Kickstarter's the best way to uh, to reach out. Or is there a web another website that they can go to or anything like that if they have additional questions or anything? Sure. In, a, in addition to the Kickstarter, you can always email us at info at guardian-project.com. And uh, one of us will will respond. And, you know, that's what we try to do is, is to respond to, to as many people as we can because people will have questions and they're questions that do deserve answers to. So whatever we can do to help spread the message, awareness, we're, we're happy to do. Very cool. Well, uh, like I said, if anybody's listening right now to this and they, they're against bullying, which I would hope everybody who's listening to this is against bullying, uh, go to Kickstarter and it's the Guardian Project. You can back it there. There's still a couple weeks left, plenty of time to hit that $20,000 goal. Uh, Mark Pellegrino, Andrew Rosso, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for this project, for what you guys are doing and continued success to both of you. Thanks, man. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. Anytime. My thanks once again to Mark Pellegrino and Andrew Rosso talking about their work on The Guardian Project. Make sure you find them on Kickstarter and support that worthy cause. We're going to take our next break. Come right back after this. Please stand by. Hi, this is John Glover, and you're listening to Geek to Me Radio. I love a good geek. Welcome back to Geek to Me Radio. As I said, uh, my name is James Ensign, the host. We're at 197 episodes this episode. Show wouldn't be possible without our great sponsors, and the official movie sponsor of Geek to Me Radio is Marcus Theaters. MarcusTheaters.com. I'm a movie guy. I like going to the theater. I'm fortunate that uh, we're still able to do so. We weren't for a while. Uh, Marcus Theaters has come back. They put safety precautions in place. They made it safe to go back to the movies. I understand not everyone's there. Not everyone's ready to go back yet. I get that, and I don't blame you. For those of you who missed it like me and are ready, Marcus Theaters is there to welcome you. Uh, there are some new movies that have come out. If you got to see Tenet or New Mutants or uh, some of the other ones that have come out, fantastic. But they've also got some retro series. They've got some things that just allow you to have a great time at the movies. Go to the website, MarcusTheaters.com. Find the Marcus Theaters or movie tavern closest to you. Buy your tickets online. Download the Marcus Theater Movie Tavern app so you can get your concessions uh, for a contactless time at the movies. Let me know if you had a good time. Let me know what you thought. Uh, you can shoot me an email, geekedmeradio at gmail.com. And Marcus Theaters is, I know, very glad to see you back at the movies. We're going to take another break. Come right back with our next guest, Jeremy Turner. So stand by. Sophia Loren, Barbara Streisand, and John Crawford. Paul Newman, Rock Hudson, Spike Lee, Peter Lover, Jack, Jack Nicholson, Brando, and Marilyn Monroe. And that's all the people we know. Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, Silent Bob. You're listening to Geek to Me Radio, man. This is the only radio show that the guy does Batman Beyond listens to for his geek news. Welcome back to Geek to Me Radio. 
As I said, a full boat of guests. We are going to go right to our next one. Right now, we're joined by two-time Emmy nominee, composer, uh, conductor, multi-instrumentalist, Jeremy Turner. How are you? Good. How's it going, James? Doing very well. Very, very excited, uh, as we've all been, we just talked about a little bit before we started recording, uh, COVID has us all glued to the TV in a lot of ways, and Disney Plus has been giving us a lot of great content, and I'm very excited because on November 20th, we get this new Disney Plus documentary series, Marvel 616, which you've had a heavy hand in with the music and the composing. It's got to be a lot of fun for you to kind of have this uh, type of playground to, to uh, compose in. Absolutely. Yeah. Any Anytime you get uh, a call for, for anything from Disney or Marvel, it's always, uh, you know, you get to use all everything in your toolkit. So. So when you got the call, what were the first kind of thoughts going through your mind? Obviously, you've worked on a lot of big projects. You've worked on uh, film and uh, TV movies and things like that. But uh, you've worked on docu-series. But this one, I would I would assume, it, it's a little bit of a, you got to kind of raise the bar because it's Disney, it's Marvel, it's a lot of fan base expecting things. What were your thought process going into this when you got the call? Yeah, there is, you know, there's there's a certain amount of uh, gravitas that comes with, with those big names. Um attached to, to this. And, um, you know, the, the first thing that we discussed pretty early on in the process with, with, the uh, supper club and, uh, my friends over there were, was the main titles, which, um, was actually created before. Well, I guess just as the series was starting to get shot. Um, so before, you know, it's an anthology series, I should point out. So there's, you know, eight different episodes. I only scored one of the eight. Um, but the main titles themselves, we we had to have kind of uh, some conversations. And it was funny because back then, this was, I guess, uh, about a year ago, um, the main title designer actually lives in Australia. And... Um, I was in Vancouver and the producers were in LA. And so we were kind of already having this, you know, scattered, um, conversation of, you know, being far apart, like we all have become used to in 2020. Um, but yeah, we, we, we jumped on a call with, with Pat Claire who designed the main titles and he's, you know, did Westworld and true detective and some, Mm. you know, really great, great work. And, um, it was that classic, sort of chicken egg conversation at the beginning of, of a project where, you know, we discussed some ideas, what was it going to be like? And, and then, yeah, you have that backbone of, of Marvel running through it. So you want to stay true to what, you know, you, you think the fans are going to be expecting. And, and um, so, you know, I immediately thought, okay, this is going to be big, big and grand and orchestral and heroic and all that kind of stuff. Um, So, yeah, I wrote a little, demo and sent it to pat and he started uh creating to it and honestly that was kind of it it was it was a bit rare in that um the first thing i wrote and the only thing i wrote ended up being the actual main title so we, we didn't we didn't really have um any back and forth or it was just yeah kind of went from there and i mean you know tiny little marginal um shifts in terms of timing and things like that but but the uh yeah what i wrote on the first go ended up making it all the way through which is rare but i was happy to see that happen so and then if i'm not mistaken each one of the episodes 
uh, it has a little bit of a variation of the main theme. So it's, it's slightly, I guess, to do with whatever the subject matter of that particular episode is. Yeah. So the so the the music for the main titles uh, remains the same for for each of the eight episodes. But yeah, each each main title has a, a slight customization uh, customization rather um, visually. So that that yeah pertains to um, you know the subject matter at hand and and sometimes even you know who directed it and and that kind of thing. And starting out as uh, little Jeremy Turner on the piano and the cello. Was it ever in the back of your mind that, you know, I want to do more, I want to compose, I want to, you know, score these things in TV and Hollywood? Uh, you've worked with a lot of prestigious orchestras and musical bodies. Is this something you kind of happen on? Is it something you kind of always, this is where I want to be when I get older? How did uh, where you are now differ from where you thought you'd be? You know, it's funny. I think when I was younger, this is kind of what, where I thought I would be, but I just took a really long detour. <laughs> I, um, you know, a lot of people, if, if they have dreams or aspirations of, of becoming a film composer, um, you know, will start early and maybe go to school for it or, you know, start scoring student films and, and or be an assistant to a, a, a more well-known composer and kind of work their way up the ranks. I had this whole different trajectory in that, you know, I was a cellist in my former life and was a performer and played in an orchestra and, um, you know, was very content doing that for a while. But I think after a while there was this sort of itch inside that, that wanted to create and, um, and get back to my love of, of film, but also, you know, help incorporate all that I'd learned, um, musically on, on my own personal journey. So, you know, when I finally put pen to paper and started um, working in film and, and television, you know, I, I'm definitely coming at it from a very different place, I think, than, sure. than a lot of people. So, And I know so, yeah. a lot of people, when they're, when they're working on stuff, um, you know, obviously you've got quite a ways to go. You're, you're still young. You've got a long career ahead of you. When did you feel, what was the project or what was it, what was it you were working on where you kind of really feel, had that kind of gut feeling, you know what? I've made it. This is what I, this, this is, I'm in my groove. This is where I should be. Uh, what, what project was that? Do you have a recollection? That's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, there, I mean, there were, there were a couple along the way, but I, I would say the first one that, that really kind of, um, made me feel like I was doing what I was meant to be doing was, um, a couple years ago, um, this Netflix series called five came back Yeah, and, um, which coincidentally, uh, shares an executive producer in common with 616, uh, my good friend, Jason Sturman. Um, but, um, yeah, that was, that was a kind of a rescue gig. Um, I got called very late in the process and had to, uh, you know, just basically cancel my entire life and go into the, the cave and, and, uh, write a ton of orchestral music in a very short amount of time. And, but, uh, really felt, you know, Hey, this is, I'm, I'm really using everything that all of my experiences and everything that I know and, and threw it into that and, uh, and getting to, yeah, conduct the orchestra at Warner brothers and, and be surrounded by great musicians and, um, put it all together. And yeah, that was probably the first time I was like, okay, this is, this is what, this feels good. This feels right. And this is what I'm, I'm meant to be doing here. So. 
and is coming in at the last minute and having to deal with all that wasn't enough. It's one of the producers of Steven Spielberg on that for crying out loud. So that had to add, <laughs> add a little extra pressure. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was definitely, there was a lot of big names on that project, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, getting, getting to work with him was, you know, obviously a dream come true. And, um, I ended up bumping into him in New York a couple, couple of years after that. And, uh, it was, it was a really fun, you know, fun conversation for me. I was thinking back to, you know, watching ET and, you know, all these things when I was a kid and, 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 you know, to finally, you know, shake hands with him and, and hear his praise for, for what I'd done for that project was, you know, really meaningful and special to me. I'll bet. And again, we should mention that, uh, Disney plus documentary series, Marvel 616 will be coming out on November 20th. Until then, we've obviously got The Mandalorian and a lot of other things, other things to keep us busy. On exactly. Track. But it's got to be, uh, what was the most surprising thing for you when you came into this project uh, for Marvel 616? Was it uh, just the, the, the people you got to work with? Something that surprised you the most? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, I can't say there was any any one big surprise, but for me, working on the episode that I that I did work on, which was directed by Paul Shear, um, what was really fun for me was was just getting to um, get into his head of and and when you see, I, I forget, have you seen it yet? Or I saw the trailer. That's about all I've so seen. So the trailer, yeah. got it, got it. Okay. Um, like I said, there's eight different episodes, you know, eight different subject matters, eight different directors. But uh, Paul just did a masterful job. It's it's as meta as can be, and and um, getting into what I thought his head space was of of creating this epic, you know, documentary and and uh, and scoring what I thought was going on in his brain. Um, while you could take that music and throw it under, you know, a huge battle sequence in a, in a, you know, Iron Man film or something like that. It's, it's all done with this sort of humorous approach, at least the mm. episode I worked on. And, um, so I think it, it was fun kind of getting to stir the pot of, of, you know, using these sounds that if you heard it without seeing anything, you would associate with some big grand action adventure sequence, but, um, instead you're, you're getting a little bit of comedy and a little bit of documentary and, and discovering new, uh, new characters that uh, I, I had no idea when I started working. Actually, here you go. So here's the surprise. That was a really long, long way to get there. But uh, I had no idea there were over 8,000 characters in the Marvel Universe. Um, that just blew my mind. I, I, I knew there were a lot. And, you know, I read my fair share of comic books as a kid. But but that really, that was a, a shocking number to me. So, um, and and then getting to learn you know, that, uh, as, as is discussed in the episode I worked on, even the big names that, that we all associate these days, um, with, you know, being super famous Wolverine or, um, you know, X-Men, all that stuff. It, it, they didn't start like that. They, they were all, they were all kind of, and you look at the transformation of where they ended up, you know, in the films now today, and even the way that they're drawn in the comic books with what they looked like a long time ago. And it's, it's night and day. So it, it, it is kind of fun to see, um, how the times reflect, um, each of these characters and their development and, and, and what time they might actually, 
strike and and become more popular, more mainstream, or maybe it's just too early or too late, or you know. So there's a lot of a lot of things beyond, you know, just the traditional thought of creating a character and making some comic books and and you know where it goes from there. So so yeah, it was a it was a big learning experience for me for sure. And obviously, uh, the kind of like the what started it all, Fantastic Four number one, it's coming up next year. Will be its I believe. 60th anniversary of the release of that comic which kind of kicked off the silver age of comics in the marvel universe and now we've got the marvel uh, all the way from the original 60s spider-man theme song to now the ground swelling avengers cinematic theme when you're composing and doing this main title did they want kind of a blank slate something new did they ask you to incorporate elements of these things in how did you approach with all this kind of stuff to draw on how did you approach doing the main titles that's a that's a really good question. Um, they didn't ask for anything in particular, um, which was nice. That there was quite a bit of creative freedom there to to just kind of do my thing. But um, but for sure, I, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say, you know, I had all these great themes in mind um, when I started writing. You know, and 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 thinking about um, the sound of the Marvel universe as we know it today, and and where it's come from, and um, so, you know, for me, it was, it was instantly, okay, let's, let's be, let's be big, let's be grand. Um, you know, and let's make a big, big, bold statement and, and make it awesome. So, um, yeah. And music obviously drives so much of, uh, you know, if you hit mute on something, you're not going to get that same effect with all the visuals because it's got the music, which kind of really subconsciously drives our emotions up and down. And I'm sure it's, it's no different working on a series like this. So tell everybody uh, where else, what else you're working on uh, that they can kind of keep an eye out for you other than the documentary series, Marvel 616 on Disney plus. Sure. Sure. Um, Yeah. There's a couple of things that have uh, just come out uh, these last couple of months. um, Very different from the Marvel universe, but um, immigration nation, which came out on Netflix, um, and I did a couple episodes of Chef's Table, which was really fun to, to work with. And, um, and I'm currently working on a Hulu project um, uh, that's coming out, uh, I think, in the new year. So um, no, no shortage of, of things to keep me busy during these uh, strange times in which we live. <laughs> that's, being busy is a definitely a good thing, especially now when we've got uh, – it almost feels like we've got nothing but time. So <laughs> that's got to be Yeah. Great. No, I've been, I've been thankful to, to have uh, some projects to keep me busy during, you know, during lockdown and all that. And, uh, yeah, very, very thankful. So. And we should also mention JeremyTurnerStudio.com is the website. Are you on social media? Is there some way uh, people can keep up with you? You know, I'm I'm no good. I'm no help in that in that category. Okay. I, I never even signed up for Facebook. I I, uh, I you know I'll snoop once in a while, but no, I don't have any social media accounts. So. You're probably better off. And it sounds like you're too busy to worry about keeping up with social media anyway. So that's that's that's, that's the idea. <laughs> so perfect. Yeah. So, well, we'll look forward to seeing Disney Plus documentary series Marvel 616. I'm very excited. It starts on November 20th. Do you know, are they dropping them all at once? Or is it going to be one of those like The Mandalorian where they put an episode up each week? Do you have any idea? You know, that's a good question. I I think there was an original plan to to drop them individually. But I, to my knowledge, I think it all comes out uh, on November 20th. So they'll, they'll be able to, you know, binge watch all eight. 
So and, and there's uh, the documentaries Disney Plus have done so far. We watched the Imagineering one, and they're just absolutely brilliantly done. So I've got no doubt Marvel Six One Six will also be in that same vein. Thanks to your help, of course. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a, it's been a fun one to be a part of, and you know we're all definitely looking forward to it coming out to the world. So I'm I'm imagining so. Jeremy Turner, and it's JeremyTurnerStudio.com. Thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, James. Have a good afternoon. You too. My thanks again to composer Jeremy Turner. Very excited to see Marvel 616 on Disney Plus November 20th. We're going to take another break. Come right back talking with Rob Price after this. Stand by. Never thought that you would be standing here so close to me. There's so much I feel that I should say. Hey guys, this is Raul Coley and I play Dr. Ravi Chakrabarty on the CW's iZombie and you're listening to geek to me Radio. Welcome back to the show, geek to me Radio, here every week. I'm your host, James Enstall, and we got to sit down and talk with Rob Price about the work on The Haunting of Bly Manor. Right now we're talking to Rob Price, the VFX supervisor for Zoic Studios, about the work they've been doing on The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix. Rob, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Yourself? Doing well. Thanks for the time today. I appreciate it. It's always fascinating to talk to people who work behind the scenes on these things, uh, these series and these movies, because uh, honestly, as good as the actors are or aren't, it's people like you who do the heavy lifting that really bring it home for some of these uh, of these movies and TV shows. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, there is a uh, always a lot of hard work by a lot of people to get any of this done. Uh, and I think it's a lot more than that everyone really realizes goes into even, you know, the smallest of TV shows takes, takes hundreds of people. So just great to get out there and talk about it. Yeah. And I know, uh, Jenna sent me over some stills some before and after shots of the work you've done on the haunting of Bly Manor. That's now streaming on Netflix. And it's some of those things you don't even realize, wow, that's what it looked like before, because the, the work you guys do is so seamless, uh, let, let's start, talk a little bit about how you got involved in visual effects. Uh, visual effects, uh, for me, uh, was kind of a longer road of discovery. Uh, it, for me, I was, uh, going to college for fine art, uh, going down that path of maybe becoming a graphic designer because, I was good at computers as well as art. Uh, then I kind of discovered, uh, you know, I've always been a fan of movies and television and behind the scenes, but I've never really made the, the correlation between what I did and what needed to be done for that. Uh, until I really kind of looked at it and discovered that like for all these animated movies and everything that somebody had to go into the computer and like build uh, everything that went into them. And then, you know, you kind of did the math of like, well, maybe I can do that. Uh, so I kind of changed my, uh, you know, my gear that I was doing in college, redirected it towards uh, computer animation and uh, visual effects, uh, and then graduated with a degree and uh, came out into the world and started working really hard, uh, working on a, a lot of TV shows and movies. And I can even imagine, because I know I looked at some of the stuff both that Zoic Studios have done uh, from from feature films like Mother and Avengers 2 Age of Ultron, Night at the Museum 3, to television shows like Ozark, 
Hellstorm, Fargo, The Boys, Stargirl, and you yourself have worked on some great projects like Arrow, Once Upon a Time, and True Blood. And I can only imagine all these shows, dramas, uh, episodic TVs, movies, need and rely heavily on a lot of these visual effects to uh, really drive home that visceral feeling some of us get when we're seeing some of these, especially when it comes to the horror genre like The Haunting of Bly Manor. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, there is a, you know, there's a lot that rests on the shoulders of making that final image. Uh, and there's a lot of trust given uh, to us to make that happen. Um, and a lot of back and forth throughout the, like, you know, the pre-planning of everything, making sure that uh, elements are shot or that we have concepts and a lot of, like, creative conversations happening early to make sure that we can, you know, on the back end have everything we need and execute uh, the final vision uh, for these creations. It's, uh, it's really fun and exciting to, uh, to see and to be a part of the entire process. And obviously when we're uh, talking about an action movie or TV show like Avengers Age of Ultron or like Arrow, it, it's, the, uh, it's the explosions and the visual effects that we see, things like that, that really kind of bring home the spectacle. But on a, I guess... I don't know if intimate's the right word, but when you're watching something like The Haunting of Blind Manor, where it is, uh, you're not, it's not the grandiose effects, but it's those little things that are put in that really kind of give that gut punch delivery to certain scenes. So obviously, I would think one has to approach every project uh, a little bit differently. Am I correct? Oh, oh, 100%. Uh, every, every project is its own, you know, special snowflake and needs to be treated appropriately. Uh, that's, you know, there are the there are the shows that we are just, you know, throwing out cool ideas like Arrow is a perfect example of something that we try to kind of come up with. Like, what is the cooler idea that we're like, how can we push this a little further to make it a little more amazing? Uh, and uh, we work really hard at trying to trying to make that happen. Blind Manor, on the other hand, yeah, subtlety and the hidden effects and trying to make it meld into everything else that was created uh, is the name of the game. And it's its own unique challenge to try and be, you know, not distracting to anyone and everybody thinks it's just there and it's real. Uh, it's, it's all really kind of fun and exciting in its own unique way. And uh, zoicstudios.com is the website and Emmy winning VXF company. I was, I was blown away by some of the projects you guys have worked on. We listed off some at the very beginning the Haunting of Bly Manor now streaming on Netflix. I'm not finished. I haven't done the entire series yet. And I know some of our listeners may not have started yet. So without giving any spoilers away, is there any one uh, scene or something you can point to that you worked on for this show that really astonished you that you guys were able to pull it off? Uh, I, I really have to say, uh, and I think uh, a lot of people have, uh, have uh, you know, since uh, found this out, but uh, my you know, crowning achievement is the fact that we created the entire house for uh, the Haunting of Bly Manor. Uh, every single ex exterior shot uh, in the show is a uh, CG-generated uh, house uh, that we've gone to, like, great lengths to uh, create a house for the Haunting of Bly Manor, both, you know, te technically and creatively for the show that uh, I, uh, nobody questions it. <laughs> like you were saying earlier about the hidden effects, uh, even something as large as 
the house, which is almost its main a main character in itself. Yeah. Uh, no one really questions it. So it's it's one of my favorite parts of the show is just the fact we were able to uh, create that, and it, it doesn't take anybody out of the world that the story can still just be absorbed, and nobody's you know really looking at us. Um, we went to a great extent to, uh, uh, to, to make that house happen. So very, very proud of it. Very glad that, uh, that everybody's very much enjoying it. And talking about the house. So it's, it's not a real house. You guys basically designed it, built it up more or less from scratch, but not in a typical, we're going to build a house kind of way. Talk a little bit about that process. Yeah. Uh, so to create the house, when we were brought on board, uh, we knew from, uh, Mike, uh, and Trevor and all the creative team over at uh, Intrepid Studios that we were gonna need, going to need a house uh, that could do a lot of heavy lifting, that it was going to need to span uh, like hundreds of years in time, uh, that it was going to need to be brand new and uh, old and decrepit. Um, <clears throat> to achieve that, we actually uh, started with a great base. We went down to Washington State uh, and visited a castle called uh, Thornwood Castle. We uh, went down there, we scanned the entire house uh, with LiDAR scanners, which are these toaster-sized scanners that shoot out lasers. We scanned the entire house, did tons of photo reference. Uh, we even took a, a lighting crew down there uh, so the DP could uh, light the house uh, and do reference of you know how we wanted it to look for the show. Uh, we used that house as a base. Uh, so we also had a couple of extra challenges uh, where I don't think people realize it, but the, the interior of the house is actually on several different sound stages built in several different parts. Uh, so we kind of had to make, make the exterior and the interior make sense together. So we had to kind of move the exterior of the house, kind of move different wings of the house, make things a little bigger here, a little smaller there, some design changes. Uh, we even uh, threw in some uh, references to earlier iterations of, uh, of different movies and television shows that did uh, the turning of the screws. So we threw in little uh, little things here and there to kind of make it a little more blood. Hmm. Um, and all that coming together, and uh, we just kind of pushed it, uh, you know, to the blind manner that we see on screen. Um, and I, you know, I'm very proud and very happy that no one can really see that it's, uh, you know, a lot of people actually seem to think that we actually shot at Thornwood Castle down in Washington. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a, that's a great feather, feather in our cap that people think we were really there uh, on location. But no, we are on a 200 foot blue screen here in Vancouver uh, and nobody knows the difference. That's amazing, and it shows you just how far, like we alluded to earlier, that how far technology really has come in these types of shows and movies. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I don't think we'd be able to achieve this without some of the uh, newer techniques. Like, uh, one of the things I didn't touch on was, like, the LiDAR scanning and the ability to physically scan locations. Uh, we're doing more and more and more of that, uh, where even the entire interior of the house, like I mentioned, uh, being in several locations that, you know, when you're upstairs and you happen to look downstairs, in real life, there's nothing there. That we actually, 
you know, scanned the entire first floor to digitally put into shots that are on the second floor looking down. Um, and we wouldn't have had that ability unless we, you know, that technology progressed to the point where it's actually super useful and viable uh, and at the level where it can be uh, high res enough uh, to be on screen and nobody nobody can see the difference. That's amazing. It's just amazing that the, the stuff that can be done nowadays when you when you really think about it. Uh, like you said, if you watch this, you would think you guys were on set. Uh, but just it's amazing that none of that's needed with the technology that's there. So, again, kudos to the job you guys did because you'd never know. Yeah, no, I, I very much appreciate it. And uh, I'm very, uh, very happy, very excited for the for the show and everybody to be able to see it and, you know, love it as much as we do because we are very excited to work on it. Uh, and very excited it's out there. And as we also mentioned, so many projects that you personally have worked on. Is there one particular series, show, or movie that you've worked on that for you is a favorite, be it because of something just uh, like something you personally came up with for the show that like you didn't think you'd be able to do, some kind of great uh, interaction you had with some of the other uh, crew? One project you'd have to point to is like, wow, I, this one was a really fun, enjoyable project for me. <laughs> Well, I have to say, uh, one of the defining uh, shows for me has always, and probably always will be, Once Upon a Time. Uh, and, and that really is because of how big of a challenge uh, that show really is. I don't think uh, most viewers of it realize how many visual effects shots and how big of a show and challenge that is uh, for visual effects. Hmm. Um, that, that, that show was a lot of work, but with a lot of work comes a lot of, uh, great experiences with a lot of great people, uh, creating a lot of great effects. So that one is probably one of the ones that will always, uh, kind of be there for me, um, as a, uh, as I continue to move through, through, uh, you know, more and more shows and. I'm sure there will be others. There's a there's a lot of special ones out there, but that's probably the biggest one for me. And it, it also, uh, I was on that show for the longest uh, of you know of any show I've ever been on. Yeah. Uh, actually, being on that show for its entire run, uh, so it's <laughs> I think it's also probably why it stands out the most is it's just been the uh, the most that I've had to that I've worked on. So. And to your point about how, you know, the average viewer might not realize all the effects that went into it, I'd say is kind of a testament to the work that you guys do. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of people can pick out the little things they know are fake, but don't really realize that there are just hundreds of effects that just go unnoticed because they're just they're not meant to be noticed. And that's really the, uh, the beauty of it. Uh, and I think a lot of visual effects artists and artists uh, take pride in that a lot of what they do, no one will ever see. Uh, and it's, you know, it's really meant to be that way. We're, we're a part of the, the team in creating a final product. We don't need to necessarily be out there on our own. And as someone who's a veteran of the field, uh, VFX, and all the work you've done, uh, the, the, the experience you've had, what would you say to people who are aspiring, they want to get into VXF, uh, I'm sorry, VFX work, and they want to kind of go into that field, what advice would you give someone who's, you know, 
going into college, maybe or just getting out of college, thinking this is what I want to do, what would you, uh, what wisdom would you impart to them? Uh, it's it's uh, I think like any anything else that your hard work and dedication really will uh, come through for you. That you know you work really hard. People know you work really hard, uh, and that reputation will take you very very far. Uh, when I was starting into the industry, me and my, uh, couple of buddies that graduated together immediately moved to a city, uh, that had a lot of, uh, film work. We all moved to Los Angeles, uh, kind of sight unseen just because we knew we had to be, uh, someplace like Los Angeles to be in this industry, uh, and just worked really, really hard. Sometimes having, you know, multiple jobs at the same time, uh, taking, uh, multiple contracts kind of working, you know, not 24 seven, but pretty close to trying to get, do, do as much as we could and get our, you know, the, the old 10,000 hours in yeah. as quickly as possible, uh, to try and, you know, move, move ourselves up in, you know, for ourselves and our own skill sets, uh, as well as in the industry. So it, it I think that applies to, uh, most, careers and fields, especially something like the film and television industry, where hard work, dedication, and your reputation really takes you really far once uh, once people start to learn, learn uh, how well you're doing. That's great advice. And of course, we mentioned zoicstudios.com as a website. You can see all the cool things they're doing and uh, almost take a virtual tour of their work and their offices and everything. If people want to keep up with you, Rob, are you on social media, Twitter, Instagram? Where can people find you? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, I'm uh, typically a little busy to be uh, posting a lot, but you can find me on uh, you can find me on Instagram at rp is right. RP is right, and that's Instagram for uh, so yeah. Social media, I know, obviously, as busy as you are, it would you'd almost need an assistant <laughs> to keep up with all the social media stuff that uh, people seem to put out and post. Yeah, I, I think uh, for social media for for myself, I I typically stay behind the scenes uh, in in uh, most production, and I kind of uh, treat a lot of social media like that as well, where I kind of stay behind the scenes uh, on that uh, for the most part. Gotcha. Uh, but you can definitely check out uh, Zoic Studios on Instagram uh, and Facebook, and they are constantly sharing all the great work that we're doing. And it's amazing to see some of these, like I said, these before and after shots you you never would have known. So kudos to your work and uh, the work of all the people there at Zoic Studios. Rob Price, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, and thanks for your time today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, James. Great talking with you. That's going to do it next week, episode 198 with voice actor Susan Eisenberg. Thank you, as always, to Joey V for making this sound as good as it does each week. And keep with us as we ramp up to the 200th episode. Until next week, my friends. It's not in the way you watch I sound be. It's not in the way you watch the flash. It's not in the
Thank you, Bly Manor. Good night. Hi, this is James Enstall, host of Geek Me Radio, and in honor of my favorite Themyserian, I've decided to become an Amazon warrior. Hera, give me strength. The next time you want to buy something from Amazon, go to geektomeradio.com first and click on our Amazon affiliate link. Simply shop like you normally would, and when you check out, a small percentage will go towards supporting the show. So remember, the next time you want to search Amazon for the latest Wonder Woman graphic novel or parts for your invisible jet, click through from geektomeradio.com first. The world was in peril. Would you have me stand by and do nothing?